thankfully, one thing that helps about this thing that I'm writing is that I am able to reuse some stuff that we did for the show. <laughs> oh, that rocks. So that I am attempting to actually translate <laughs> the stuff that we're doing on the show into <laughs> real-world local impact. So That, we'll that really rocks. Uh, I, I honestly am very excited for everything that's uh, going on. I know that we've got a huge show planned today, but, like, I don't the know. It just feels good. Stuff just doesn't stop happening. Like, I keep thinking, you know, eventually we're going to cover all the things, but then the things keep occurring. So, I mean, it's yeah, good for us as a news show because, you know. <laughs> yeah, it took us over two weeks. Well, it took us three weeks to do catch-up, right? And then... Yeah, well, and I mean... And, and now I we're mean, caught up, and it's still the same size episode. And to pull back the curtain for listeners, in my, like, holding pen article that I... Or, or like document that I have for just storing stories that we, we can't cover week to week. I still have stuff from like two years ago that I have in there because I'm like, yeah, but what if it connects to another story in the mm-hmm. future? Then I'll have these notes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> then we'll have it. Yeah. And that doesn't become a problem until five to 10 years down the line <laughs> when your document is 82 million words long. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it'll uh, it'll help in the long run. You know, we'll start. You'll start writing your book, your uh, <laughs> dissertation, or whatever it is, and you'll be like, "Oh shit, I actually have all this stuff." Yeah, when is Dan's book coming out on um, Verso or Zero <laughs> or uh, Minnesota Ver- Press or Ver- Verso? Eighteen oh four, right? <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. Verso publishes a lot of shit you wouldn't expect. Some good, most of it bad. <laughs> Verso did publish some of Lacerdo's stuff. It just re- refusing to 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 sign a deal with Verso to write a shitty book uh, unless they relinquish their uh, holding rights to Domenico Lacerdo's translated <laughs> work, so somebody else who will actually publish it can do so legally. Hell yeah. I'm going to be the first author to release a book on Kill Rockstars, the record label. (laughs) (laughs) Kurt Brauneler did a comedy set on what was normally a punk label. I intend to take it one step further. (laughs) We've Uh, finally gone truly multimedia, folks. That's true. to your number one multimedia podcast. We've got slides, we've got statues, we've got holograms, and (laughs) my name is John. (laughs) I'm Dan, and we will soon be introducing the new Thinesthesia portion of the podcast, so look out for that. (laughs) I'm Lena, and I'm sewing everybody's costumes. That's right. (laughs) And we collectively are Work Stoppage, an entirely listener-supported show. So if you support us on Patreon, thank you so very much. It goes a really long way. Uh, If you're not in the Discord already, hop in there. People are hosting a really great reading group in there that you can catch every week. Saturday mornings, am I getting that right? Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern. But I think there's actually a a win-to-meet or like a let's-let-us-meet kind of thing going on. So if you want to make sure that it gets scheduled on the time that you're available, jump in there. There is a a little channel in the voice channel area called Reading Group. 
Right on. 1 p.m. That's perfect because uh, that's right when Saturday morning cartoons end and Maury comes on. So uh, <laughs> if you don't, don't have stickers yet, uh, message us on Patreon and we will get you some stickers. If you want to help the show out a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or you can go on Maury and shout the show out into your microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So as Lena said, you know, we've got a ton of stuff to cover this week, so we'll just jump right into it. Uh, first with a, a quick follow-up. On, you know, last week we had the big nationwide strike by Starbucks workers nationwide at 150 different stores across the country protesting Starbucks's attacks on pride and, and the ability of workers to be able to celebrate it. Uh, and so the company, of course, this whole time has been lying and saying, no, we didn't change anything about our policy. Everything those workers are telling you, including the things your lying eyes are telling you on the videos that they're leaking, that's all fake. That's not real. <laughs> and yet, despite, according to them, there never having been any changes to the pride rules, they have now announced that after the strike that they will be clarifying their policy around pride, which of oh. course is what you do when you haven't made any changes to a policy. Yeah, yeah I love to clarify so something clear. that's a long-standing policy. I mean, <laughs> good gracious. A policy you've had for over a decade? Tell you what that needs, clarification. <laughs> right. And so, because again, it's like, uh, as everybody I'm sure has seen, because there's videos and testimonials and pictures there's you know mountains of evidence were this a court case it would be open and shut that mm -hmm. starbucks has been telling managers to crack down on pride displays as a way of retaliating against uh union workers especially because of course as we've mentioned you know there's been a kind of a disproportionately high number of LGBTQ workers who have been prominent organizers in Starbucks Workers United. And so once again, just as we saw with, you know, trying to extort workers out of uh, union organizing by threatening health care for trans workers, once again, we see the company, you know, targeting LGBTQ workers as a way of trying to drive a wedge in its workforce. And yet, Again, we, that's something that we don't just see at Starbucks. We see that sort of thing all the time. But the thing that we've seen at Starbucks with the recent organizing work by Starbucks Workers United is a successful fight back against that. Because even as the company continues to deny they're doing anything, just the fact that they've been forced to acknowledge the workers' discontent because of this is already, you know, I think, a victory for the workers and, and, and really starting to show that the public doesn't really believe Starbucks' lies, that they're not union busting anymore. So just want to congratulate the workers for standing up for their rights at work during pride and for forcing Starbucks to respond. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in another kind of long running struggle that we've been talking about, uh, this one down in Mexico, workers have continued to stand up and demand a voice in the workplace. This week, we saw another big win where workers at an automotive parts multinational, how do I pronounce this? Frankisha. Frankisha Industrial Pipes voted on <laughs> Monday to uh, <laughs> shake off their corrupt company union and join Cintia, who, yeah, I mean, they made headlines a while ago as creating some of the first independent unions at U.S. automakers GM in Salau, or at the Salau plant, you know, where GM is. Um, and this uh, industrial pipes plant is also in Salau. Um, 
And so it's really great to see more of these workers standing up against the kind of company union of the the CTN, right? It's not here in the CTM, yeah. CTM, yeah. Uh, and and you know, joining in with Cynthia for you know building up an actual fighting union. Hell yeah! One of your demands should be to rename the place. What the hell is Frankisha Industrial Pipes? <laughs> like <laughs> you, you blow into a big steel rod, and like the death knell of Kaiser Wilhelm comes out the other <laughs> end or something. <laughs> but yeah, so no, this rocks. We love to see these the the independent union movement in Mexico. That's really rebuilding, you know, union democracy in that country, uh, continuing to succeed here. We love to see it. And this is once again, though, you know, having to overcome some violence and, and, and harassment from the company. Uh, workers faced uh, threats uh, when they were potentially going to vote for the new union, intimidation during the union drive, and unsurprisingly, several workers who were openly supportive of Cynthia were illegally fired during the union drive. And so now the union will be fighting uh, in addition to all of the other demands that they're going to have for those workers' reinstatement. And so we have a quote from Cynthia's general secretary, Alejandra Morales, who said in a statement, quote, Our union is very pleased with this outcome. It reflects the democratic will of Mexican workers and is the latest example of Mexican workers turning the page on a historically corrupt and repressive labor relations system, end quote. And just, we love to see this. And there was a bunch of international unions who were also applauding this, which was really great to see the UAW who have been standing uh, behind the uh, independent union movement in Mexico now for several years, which is great been wonderful to see. Uh, and also Unifor, which is a big international uh, union body. They also hailed the victory as a step forward for labor rights. So congratulations to these workers. And, and you know, we do love to see this independent union movement growing. Hell oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Absolutely. as long as we're talking about steps forward for the labor movement, let's talk about the fourth consecutive step forward for Barnes and Noble workers, let's where the, the union drive by these workers has continued its uninterrupted winning streak this week with the fourth store to unionize, voting 88 percent in favor of joining the RWDSU. These are the workers at the Park Slope store in Brooklyn who are joining workers in Manhattan, Hadley, Massachusetts and New Jersey. So nothing but respect to the Barnes and Noble workers keep batting a thousand out there folks we love you <laughs> yeah no we do love to see it and it even was a point where i got mark perone to retweet the show congratulating the workers for this which was kind of funny but uh um, you can call me a peronist tell you what <laughs> don't don't though not, no not really <laughs> but um anyways uh, just another real quick headline uh you know this is early days, but this could be a very interesting story, potentially, if it develops, which is obviously, you know, everyone listening to this show knows that Amazon's a monopoly. There's no mm -hmm. other online marketplace that you go on to buy stuff from that it is operating on anywhere near the scale that Amazon is operating on. They are a, you know, for lack of a better word, like an online marketplace monopoly in the United States. Um, and yet... I was still kind of surprised to, to read this week that the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, is in the process of planning to launch an antitrust suit against Amazon in the next few weeks. Now, of course, antitrust suits can have a huge range of outcomes from actually breaking up a company to just making them tweak the way that their services function. So I don't want to get people overly excited, but 
the fact that you know we have reporting from Bloomberg and TechCrunch that the the FTC is expected to attack Amazon for manipulating the market position of any sellers who don't use the companies fulfilled by Amazon service to make it so those sellers are basically deprioritized in Amazon's search results. So essentially using their control of the marketplace to manipulate who's likely to have successful outcomes in it. Uh, now, this, of course, also points to the absurdity of a privately owned market being called free. But, you know, that, <laughs> that goes into an even broader discussion. So it is very early days. The suit has not been officially fire, filed yet. But apparently Amazon is spooked enough by it that they have been going on a hiring spree of former FTC officials in preparation for fighting the lawsuit. So, uh, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how this turns out. Yeah, you said that it could be a wide range of things that come out of this. It almost seems like what they're going to make them do is tweak their algorithm more than anything. Like Probably, but I will say, anything that makes Amazon devote some of its legal resources to defending that lawsuit instead of devoting them to destroying efforts like the ALU and the Teamsters fight to unionize Amazon delivery drivers... Any way that divides their attention is still helpful, even if, you know, we know that the the, the U.S. government is not going to, like, nationalize Amazon, even though that would be the logical thing to do. I, I'm hearing you, Dan. Set up a bot that repeatedly files a thousand class action lawsuits a day against Jeff Bezos and Amazon. <laughs> I'm hearing you loud and clear. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not telling people to do that, but it is wild what the teens on TikTok have been able to figure out how to automate. Truly. (laughs) Really impressive. But also in news that we have been talking about for a little while here, uh, we have been watching, you know, the writer's strike that's been going on. Well, now we need to talk a little bit more about SAG-AFTRA because this this past Friday was a very tense day as time ticked down to having a contract for the 160,000 members of SAG-AFTRA. And just before time expired, the union announced that they would, uh, you know, that they had agreed with the AMPTP, basically the conglomerate of of all of the studios and stuff that control Hollywood and and you know movie and and like vid- video production around the country, uh, to extend their negotiations for twelve more days until July twelfth. So there's a little bit more than a week left before the strike could come to pass. And uh, that would also mean that they are joining in with the writer's strike. The union did send a letter to the studios this week signed by over a thousand high-profile actors, including Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, Joaquin Phoenix, Pedro Pascal, Amy Schumer, and the sag after president, Fran Dresser. Uh, emphasizing that the studio emphasizing to the studios their willingness to strike in and if their demands are not met. The letter addressed as much to the executive board uh, of the union as the studio said, quote, this is not a moment to meet in the middle. And it's not an exaggeration to say that the that the eyes of history are on all of us. We ask you to push for all the change we need and protections we deserve and make history doing it. If you are not able to get all the way there, we ask that you use the power given to you by us, the membership, to join the WGA on the picket lines, end quote. And holy shit, that is a really good statement because it really <laughs> it really rings of the no concessions similar to like the teams is like, uh, no, we're not meeting in the middle. You're, we're getting it all and mm-hmm. we deserve it all. Yeah, and I, I always think it's important to to emphasize to people because, like, you know, uh, obviously, 
in any union, people have different experiences because people are working different jobs. Some people are, you know, on the staff or whatever. But to emphasize that it's like, yeah, no, we don't want to strike. It'd be really disruptive. It would be difficult, you know, for our lives. But it's like, don't let that think that we want you to make concessions at the bargaining table to prevent one. It's like, yeah, we don't want to strike, but these are our demands. And if the studios aren't going to agree to them, then we'll be right out there. And and really, I think, especially in the case of the the actors, really, they'll continue to be out there on the picket line with the WGA. Because that's one thing that I think during this writer strike has been really prominent is that we've seen like all sorts of actors like Brian Cranston, Jerry mm-hmm. Ryan. Uh, I mean, I, I think I might have seen a picture of like Dan Aykroyd at one of the, <laughs> the, the picket lines. There have been a lot of big actors like all over the place supporting the writers. And so, I, and I think that's one of those things that helps make it clear that like, the actors, like while they did agree to this extension, are plenty willing to strike. So, oh yeah, well, so, and it, so it's we'll a, see over this next week if if they end up signing a deal or if we have you know like two hundred thousand plus people on strike across the country. It's also important to note that in this industry, like I know they're separate unions, but writers and actors don't just work with each other. They're often the very same people. I mean, you have mm-hmm. guys like Danny DeVito who's in both unions and the directors' union. You know, so yeah, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And and also, I- imagine having Fran Drescher running your side of the negotiating table. Yeah. That is an asset right there. Right. The nanny, you know she's going to stick it to him. Exactly. <laughs> well, and, and, and actually, specifically, I have been reading that, you know, like traditionally the two halves of this, the union coalition that is SAG-AFTRA, mm-hmm. SAG and AFTRA, <laughs> have run competing slates for executive positions, and that has uh, sometimes gotten a bit... Uh, uh, testy, I guess, from reading about this. But both sides have endorsed Fran Drescher's leadership and and to continue like beyond this current negotiating pr- period. So she seems to be quite a uniting figure and, and and somebody who like the membership trust to actually be a hard negotiator, which I think kicks ass. That's Hell so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, so moving on to one last quick headline, just for a bit of a, a, I think, some historical schadenfreude as well as also just general good news. Uh, so, you know, I'm never going to be out here telling you that industrialized gambling is a good industry that would continue under socialism. But uh, under capitalism, as long as places like Las Vegas exist, we want the workers there to have the best possible working conditions. And one of the things, you know, that's characterized Las Vegas, people might be surprised, is pretty high union density because there's so many hospitality workers in that area that Unite Here and other hospitality unions have been a major force in Las Vegas for years. But there have for a long time been two major casinos on the strip that were holdouts as non-union shops. These were the Venetian and the Palazzo, which were owned by billionaire, uh, far-right political donor, uh, Sheldon Adelson. However, he has since passed away. And now that he's dead, (laughs) uh, uh, both of those two casinos are now under new management. And just this week, it was announced that the hospitality unions in Las Vegas have reached an agreement with the owners of the Venetian and the Palazzo to hold neutral card check elections with the four big unions that represent the bulk of the workers in the city. So on, on Tuesday, June 27th, in a press release, the Bartenders Union, Culinary Union, Operating Engineers Local 501, and Teamsters Local 986 announced that the Venetian and the Palazzo had agreed not to interfere in the rights of workers to organize. And they had a quote from... Uh, 
Gladys Henderson, a 15-year veteran floor attendant at the Venetian, who said in a statement, quote, I'm really excited that the Venetian and Palazzo is respecting my choice and remaining neutral as my coworkers and I choose whether to unionize. My coworkers and I are excited for what the future holds for us and are grateful to have this opportunity, end quote. Hell so yeah. I wanted, I kind of want to like question the motives here a little bit. Not, I mean, this is great. Uh, absolutely. That they're getting card check. Uh, is it, I mean, sure. Sheldon Adelson is like, was like an entrenched piece of shit. Is it now that like, they're just afraid because gambling is such a kind of, uh, I don't know, bad industry that there's going to be repercussions if they don't do this or, or, or what is actually giving this change of heart and not like living to the, the song of the old bastard. I mean, my guess of it is that more that like the new owners have recognized that Adelson was spending an enormous amount of money fighting union drive attempts and that that was actually probably a huge waste Mm -hmm. of money and that he was primarily doing it for ideological reasons. Like these are my casinos. But then if you have like a private equity company or some like faceless investment firm that buys it, they're like, we're just looking at the numbers and the numbers say that, why are you spending all this money? What if we just let them have the thing. And then if we build up a little bit of goodwill, maybe they won't be, you know, fight as hard in the negotiations. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a fact that the, you know, unions are in every, like these are the last holdouts and they're like, we actually can't fight this. My, yeah, I mean, that's my interpretation is that they're just like, we're probably going to lose anyway. So if we just like don't interfere and don't spend this money, like on union busting consultants and all this bullshit, then let them get their thing and we'll negotiate with them and we'll save some money and then we'll sell the casinos later. And who yeah, cares? Well, and yet it also saves on like, you know, manpower and everything. Cause you have to hire people to bust up unions and stuff. Cause it, it, casinos are just such a huge profit margin industry. It's like nothing but profit basically mm-hmm. once you build the building. Um, so like, yeah, they're probably just like, we could just widen the spout on the money hose and just pay them. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So congratulations to those workers. Very excited. Uh, hopefully they, you know, win their card check elections, which I assume they will. But yeah, that's, that's huge news. And, and we love to see a fully unionized Las Vegas Strip. Yeah. And uh, in another thing that we actually have put a bit of effort in covering in international news is the South Korean labor movement. So starting this week in the South Korean labor movement, uh, they've launched a series of nationwide strikes and protests to basically roll out over the next two weeks, calling for the resignation of far-right U.S. puppet Yoon Suk-yeol. Uh, Yoon's administration was uh, has initiated a reign of terror against the unions of South Korea, using the police and state forces to crush a trucker strike earlier this year, launching raids against left-wing trade unions charging organizers with ties to the DPRK, uh, accusing unionists of extortion uh, for winning just good contracts, and also, I mean, driving one worker organizer uh, to publicly commit suicide, which is a tragedy that uh, has really gone wide, has been a widespread issue in the labor movement there. Uh, The strike wave starting on the 3rd of July, which is actually today, the day of recording, uh, is expected to involve a half million workers over the course of the next two weeks. It will start with a strike and a rally of uh, couriers and home repair workers in Seoul on Monday, with uh, then increasing major rallies in Seoul, Busan, 
uh, how do I pronounce this one? Guangzhou. Guangzhou and Jeju on Wednesday. On July 12th, the major sector strikes will start with the metal workers expanding to more sectors with one day uh, with a one-day rally and strike for health, med- health, medical, and office workers on July 13th. These strikes are being led by the KCTU, that badass union that is just like has the best photos of almost any union in the world. Uh, <laughs> The largest, it's the largest, most progressive union in Korea's labor movement, and the rallies have been called specifically in response to the attempts of the Yoon regime to ban them. The government has proposed a plan to ban public rallies at night or during rush hour and banning public gatherings entirely by organizations deemed criminal by the state. Uh, the government has already warned that it will crack down hard on, quote, illegal rallies. Uh, the KCTU chairman, Yang kyung So said in a press conference, quote, we are going on a general strike because we need to stop regressive labor reforms. The KCTU declares an all-out struggle against the Yoon government, and this two-week strike is the first step, end quote. That's so badass. I love it when a two-week strike is a first step, is a <laughs> warning shot across the bow. <laughs> well, it, I also, I, I do think it is really important for us to pay attention to, you know, these developments in the South Korean labor movement, because I think a lot of the stuff that Yoon Suk-yeol has been doing since he took power, especially like with regards to the labor movement and these these protests specifically, is kind of the logical progression from the liberal justification, or in his case, conservative justification, two sides, same coin, but um, on attacking protests, strikes, any sort of mass gathering as being disruptive to the economy or disruptive to people's lives. This I'm not crushing this strike because I hate workers. It's actually an act of compassion for all of the people being impacted. And this is, you you see the same thing where these, like the government has proposed a plan to ban public rallies at night or during rush hour, which again, you could absolutely see politicians here doing the same thing to be like, hey, you know, we can't have a protest during rush hour. That would disrupt people trying to get home to their families. And we can't have that. That would be too disruptive. And there are millions of liberals who would hear that line and be like, well, you know, I, it sucks that we have to ban them, but that sounds right to me. And this is just taking that to its further conclusion. And so, like, I think there's a lot we can learn from the tactics that are used by the Korean labor movement because uh, we're going to have to fight that same stuff here. Yeah, also, well, wasn't there that- a... What time does that even provide? Sorry, I'll one second. What time does that even provide? I mean, rush hour. What? That's between like two in the afternoon and six in the afternoon, and then nighttime starts at eight. Like they could literally have it be basically illegal to have any of these rallies at any point in time with these sort of rules. Yeah, and didn't we have a state senator from like one of the southern states who wrote a bill that tried to ban salting a workplace? Oh yeah, yep. So, like, if we, we're already seeing tendrils of that, you know, showing up over here as well. Yeah. So, really glad to see, you know, this strong fight back from the Korean labor movement. I mean, as always, I feel like it's every 
every story we have about the KCTU, it's it's like marveling at the discipline of their tactics and the breadth of their struggle. So all solidarity with these workers and and hopefully this is able to, you know, spark a movement that is able to bring some relief to this unending assault from this far right government. Yeah. And whenever yeah. you guys get done fighting your government, which is like, I know that might take a while, but like, could you write a quick like handbook of all the shit you did? Cause I think that might be pretty useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so moving and I've set these up in kind of a geographical order. <laughs> mm. So we're going to move from West to East largely with our stories, uh, today in the notes. And so starting from Korea, we're moving across the Pacific ocean to the West coast of North America. We've got a big strike this week in Canada where the ILWU fresh off of forcing major shipping firms in the United States back to the bargaining table and securing a major contract win with a slowdown at ports up and down the West Coast in the United States. The ILWU this weekend declared a strike against the West Coast ports of Canada after negotiations there broke down. With typical unity, the 7,500 workers of ILWU Canada voted 99% in favor of striking, and they walked off the job Saturday, July 1st, bringing trade at the critical port of Vancouver to a screeching halt. Um, and so the ILWU is fighting for much of the same thing in Canada they were fighting for here. They're, they're fighting increased attempts by shipping companies to cut jobs through automation, these attempts by these companies to evade union rules by contracting out work instead of giving it to the workers in the union. And, of course, they're fighting against the huge cost of living increase over the last few years. Uh, So Rob Ashton, who's the president of ILWU Canada, said that the Canadian Maritime Employers Association, which manages the ports, is profiteering off their workers and that it's time for them to pay up. He said, quote, their only objective is to take away rights and conditions from longshore workers after having gorged themselves on record profits during the pandemic, end quote. And this, you know, it's... It's Canada. It's not the whole U.S., so it's, you know, not like every West Coast port or anything. But Vancouver is a huge trading port. It handles $225 billion in trade every year. And one of the things that we always see with the shipping strikes that are always interesting is attempts by the shippers to just go around them. (laughs) Uh, And so there have already been a lot of shippers who are like, "Uh, all right, fine, well, there's going to be a strike. Uh, will divert shipping to get around it. But actually, uh, surprisingly enough, despite their historic feud, uh, the other longshore union, the ILA, the International Longshoremen's Association, uh, which represents workers on the East Coast and in the Great Lakes, uh, they have declared solidarity with the ILWU during this strike and have said that they will refuse to handle diverted cargo. The ILA put out a statement saying, quote, All stakeholders in our industry know very well President Daggett and the ILA are against automation, semi-automation, and new technology for the simple reason that workers lose their jobs. President Daggett does not believe that machines should replace workers, especially in America, end quote. Well, it's fine. A a little simple, but it kind of gets to a good point. (laughs) I also want to know... Why is it that we're centering the president's opinion about this? <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll get into my thoughts on the ILA in extreme detail later this year, but... Also, isn't Daggett one of the two angry beavers? Isn't it Daggett yes. and Norbert? 
Yes, I just, that was that was bothering me. Okay, <laughs> but no, I th- but like, look, we'll, we can get into questions about the ILA later. But I think the most important thing, though, now is that they're showing solidarity with the workers on the West Coast and and refusing to be involved in attempts to get around their strike, which is fantastic and exactly what we need now. Considering the history of ILWU strikes, I don't expect this to to really last that long. Uh, They're usually extremely effective (laughs) and successful. So I would anticipate this is a short strike. To be honest, I didn't look it up today. It might already be over. (laughs) But I just say that to to, to point out that it's like, I understand that like the Canadian shippers are trying to divert stuff and get around it. But I mean, it's a port strike. The ILWU is going to win. You can't operate a port without longshoremen and you can't pull anybody off the street and have them operate a, you know, 20 story tall crane. I also, (laughs) I like this solidarity, but if the ILA is on the other coast, how much is really going all the way around? I want to know Well, they do, they've talked about trying to divert stuff by road and rail and then by shipping stuff across the Great Lakes. Also thing going out, outbound as well, I guess. I wasn't Mm -hmm. thinking, I was only thinking about inbound. Yeah, yeah, because a huge amount of the trade that comes in on the West Coast a- ends up just going across North America and then being going out again because it's going to Europe right. or it's going you know elsewhere in the world. And so, like, you have the Great Land Bridge of the United States, but with the ILA refusing to handle anything on the Great Lakes, you're not going to be able to divert anything that way. So, we'd love to see the solidarity, and as always, you know, all support to the ILWU. May they win everything that they're asking for, as I'm sure they will. Yeah, I just did a quick Google, and the most recent news is that they're going to resume talks today, and it's like, you know, 4 p.m. on a Monday, so it's like 1 p.m. in Vancouver right now. They've still got plenty of time to sort this out and get us some headlines, so... Yeah, so solidarity with the ILWU as always. For sure. Well, as long as we're talking about workers who need some solidarity, let's talk about thousands of hospitality workers in Los Angeles staying on the West Coast who are striking over the 4th of July weekend. So when we talk about organizing tactics, one of the main points we bring up pretty often is the need to maximize leverage during industrial action by timing it for maximum impact. And this weekend, thousands of hotel workers in Los Angeles did just that, launching a strike on the busy 4th of July holiday weekend all over the country's second largest city. So workers had been rallying, protesting, and demonstrating to their employers that they were serious for weeks prior to this weekend, but only one hotel out of over 65, the Westin Bonaventure, understood the message, came back to the table, and agreed to a fair deal to avert a strike. I guess when you have a silly-ass name like that, maybe you take things a little more seriously. Uh, (laughs) So these nearly 15,000 striking hotels workers, members of Unite Here Local 11, are fighting back against the cost of living crisis, which is destroying workers worldwide right now. They're fighting for wages that will allow them to live in the area they serve, where rents have exploded since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, just as we've seen them do all over the country. So workers are also fighting for fair staffing levels to cut down on rampant overwork, digital tipping, and better health care and retirement benefits. So again, three of the big staples that we see in organizing campaigns. And and this is, I feel like, one of the things that often doesn't get brought up when we'll see, like, corporate media talking about the housing crisis. Because a lot of times what they talk about is the sort of thing that perhaps folks with middle-class professions are worried about, like how expensive it is to purchase a home, which is a big deal, no doubt. 
it is like an absolutely, you know, most people, uh, a lot of folks want to have single family home ownership. And the fact that it's out of reach for the vast majority of working people, especially if you don't have a union, is a big crisis. But one of the other things, though, that I don't think is often mentioned, because I think a lot of people don't think about it because they think of people who work at hotels as being invisible, is the fact that if you want to have a hotel in a city, uh, you have to have staff for the hotel in the city. And the people who staff the hotel have to be able to get there. And for so many workers all over this country, as housing crisis, this housing crisis has gotten worse and worse and rents and, and mortgages have gone through the roof. Like we hear reporting about how it's making it difficult for like, you know, professionals to move to cities and stuff. But what about the folks that are working in the hotels? What about the folks that are, you know, working in all the restaurants? If those people can't afford to live in your city, how are they going to be able to staff any of those businesses? And I, and, and that's one of those things that I don't think it's covered nearly enough and is exactly what these workers are making loud and clear with this strike. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, And we did hear from Kurt Peterson, who was co-president of Unite Here Local 11, saying in a statement, quote, our members were devastated first by the pandemic and now by the greed of their bosses. The industry got bailouts while we got cuts. Now the hotel negotiators decided to take a four day holiday instead of negotiating. Shameful. End quote. And this is something that we see from the bosses all the time, which is just like, we need you to work. We can't possibly afford to give you more money. We're going to fight your union drives. We're going to fight everything down to the last man. Oh, but actually, we're all in the Bahamas for the weekend. So sorry about that. We can't be bothered (laughs) to negotiate. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I love there's there's just something to me about launching this strike when they're all on vacation Mm -hmm. that I feel like. Man, whoever got to send the email, (laughs) like, where they're like, we're requesting an extension of negotiations over the four-day weekend, and they're just like, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) Request denied. (laughs) See you on the fucking picket lines, Mm -hmm. assholes. We don't get a four-day weekend. Why should you? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. The union is demanding an immediate raise of $5 an hour for all the workers, followed by $3 increases in the two years and three, or the year two and year three uh, in, the con- in the proposed contract, bringing the minimum wage of the housekeepers in the union to $31 an hour by 2025. And with rents in LA averaging over $2,000 a month, uh, sometimes uh, quite or quite often around 3000 the current minimum rage weight of $20 is not cutting it at all. We do have another quote uh, here from um, Emily Lopez, a housekeeper and intracontinental or at the Intracontinental Hotel who told KTLA local news reporters, we're basically asking for necessities because the cost of living in Los Angeles has skyrocketed in the last years, and it's just getting too expensive to live here. Either I pay my insurance or I pay my rent. So I'll be without coverage because I'd rather have my rent secured till the end of the month. Most of us are moving out of the city and going further and further out, like Palmdale or Riverside. It's just getting too expensive to come to work here, too, end quote. And, I mean, having to constantly travel that far to get to work, especially in a city area like Los Angeles, which is big, but also incredibly difficult to to traverse at any reasonable speed, just... it takes up their whole days. Imagine not having, like, it's already hard enough to commute. 
And to have to commute that far for wages that don't even pay for your basic necessities, it's an insult. Well, and and in L.A., no less, where you might just sit in traffic for an hour, not moving at all, and that would just be considered fucking normal. So, or wait like hours for a bus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. And it's part of like the f- one of the fundamental contradictions of capitalism, which is that like you develop and you develop your urban spaces and you, you keep renovating them for rich people and tailoring everything to rich people. And then the rents go way up for miles and miles around. And now any poor person who wants to come in and run a, a cashier counter has to commute three fucking hours to get there. And pretty soon you don't have anybody to run your Jamba Juice or whatever the mm-hmm. hell. No, exactly. And so this strike has hit, you know, hotels all over the city, like big expensive ones all the way down to, you know, your more, nor- I guess, more regular people chains. <laughs> but it's hit, you know, the Biltmore, Marriott, Ritz-Carlton, Four Seasons. So, I mean, and this is all over the city and brilliantly timed to hit during a weekend when the city is slammed with even more tourists than they normally have. And, and particularly, it was noted by uh, Julian Mark, who was a reporter who covered this for the Washington Post, that this is also the same weekend that the city's anime expo happens, <laughs> which normally has 100,000 visitors at those hotels. And so, you know, obviously, unsurprisingly, the hotels have attempted to continue operations with scabs, but it's 15,000 workers. I don't think you found 15,000 scabs, and you didn't find any that know those hotels, like the housekeepers that are on strike do. So even where you're able to hire scabs, the level of service is going to go through the floor. And so, you know, this attempt to try and just ride out the strike is clearly not going to work. And so, I, you know, I, I think this was brilliantly timed by the workers at Unite Here Local 11, and I hope that they take these hotel companies for everything they're worth. Hell yeah, and if you went to the Anime Expo and you had a bad time because of this, I know you know how to write a scathing email. Send it to the hotel management. Send it a hundred (laughs) times. Yeah, and tell them that you are, are really dissatisfied with the fact that they chose not to pay their workers enough so that they had to go on strike mm-hmm. and that you're reconsidering ever conducting any business with them ever again if they don't actually pay their workers. Yeah, really <laughs> twist the thumb screws. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, write them bad reviews too. I hate that. <laughs> That's right. So moving a little bit inland, <laughs> uh, we've got a story out of the middle of the country in Texas and Kansas, where last week, uh, you know, we we had been talking in our last episode about a week-long strike by thousands of nurses at Providence Health in Portland, Oregon, who have been fighting for safe staffing levels. And all over the country, we've seen nurses everywhere fighting for the same thing. And we've seen it draw lines between the nurses who want the best care for their patients and the healthcare companies that own the hospitals who just want to maximize profits, even at the expense of, of their so-called customers or clients' health. Because a lot of times you'll see in their documents they don't use the word patients. It's either customers or clients because we have to have everything subsumed under market relations. I love to be a client when I'm bleeding from my fucking spleen. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so now this week, another group of nurses has joined the same fight Uh, when 2,000 nurses at Ascension Health in Texas and Kansas went on a one-day strike to protest similar issues. And and so, as reported by Truthout, Ascension is yet another of these giant, massively profitable healthcare companies like Providence, like all these other big firms. 
Uh, if you're in Rhode Island, that would be lifespan. Uh, that's our big one here. Uh, and so Ascension brought in over $6 billion in 2021. And now it's a, it's a Catholic nonprofit in the biggest air quotes in the world, in the same way that Kaiser Permanente is a nonprofit. Well, I mean, like so. 95% of nonprofits are run in exactly like predatory corporations. And if you put the word Catholic in front of it, the rate goes up to 100. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so their, their nonprofit also runs a $41 billion investment firm on the side, I guess guess i think Um, it's really cool that you can do that (laughs) that definitely shouldn't be highly illegal (laughs) yeah and and this non-profit paid their ceo 13 million dollars in 2021 again stretching the question for me of what the fuck does non-profit even mean yeah define profit (laughs) like are you telling me that guy had 13 million dollars of expenses (laughs) <laughs> that year that he made no personal profit like, look it's a competitive uh market-based salary okay <laughs> everybody knows god invented the market <laughs> <laughs> that's right so um but again despite these huge amounts of money just they're just swimming in profits and they've yet refused to hire enough nurses to actually care for the patients at these facilities in Texas and Kansas. And an investigation by the Wall Street Journal actually found that that Ascension has been systematically closing any of their facilities in poor neighborhoods and relocating them to richer ones because they can make more money if they provide privatized health care to rich individuals and not poor ones. I'm sure it's what Jesus would have done. (laughs) Yeah, and so... Uh, you know, we see all the bullshit with this. Um, and so the nurses who struck this week, uh, who are all members of the National Nurses Organizing Committee and National Nurses United, they're working out of facilities in Austin and Texas and Wichita in Kansas. And these workers had recently unionized as part of the wave of healthcare workers who saw via the pandemic how little their employers actually care about them or their patients. And During the negotiations for a new contract with these workers, they have consistently tried to impress on Ascension's, like, management that they have to hire more people, that, like, their number one thing is we don't have enough staff. We are all slammed, all overworked, and it is hurting our patients because of it. And so we need you to hire more people. But the company has refused to budge because, of course, they're a company and they they don't give a shit about the health outcomes of the patients. They just care about how much money they can bring in. And so because of this intransigence, on June 27th, the nurses walked out on a one-day strike. And and, and to to really emphasize why the strike happened, there was a quote from uh, Monica Gonzalez, who is a registered nurse in neurology, who told Truthout, quote, Ascension management pushed nurses to this position by failing to listen to or implement our solutions to address the staffing crisis. Ascension management has the power to settle a strong contract now if they are serious about staffing up and improving nurses' abilities to provide safe patient care, end quote. And this is one of those things that is always so frustrating to me about nurses' strikes because it's like, just the fact that the nurses have to go on strike for this. Like, like, I don't know. Like, this is one of those things. Like, if you want to be a private owner of a healthcare firm and there's an audit that's done that shows that, like, you know, you don't have enough staff and that actually people are getting worse health outcomes because of that, and then you're told you should hire more staff and you say no, 
that company, I mean, mild, my mild recommendation is the company should be seized from you. My more realistic explanation is you should go to prison. Yeah. I was going to say jail (laughs) pretty much immediately. (laughs) Yeah. But of course we know none of that's going to happen. And so the nurses are left to fight this battle for all of us. Right. Yeah. To add insult to injury, right? The company responded to the strike with a fucking lockout. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was just like, yeah, like you, as you said, like insult to injury is really, I think, the best way to describe it because Ascension is then basically punished the workers who chose to do a one day strike specifically to limit the impact as much as possible that their already low staffing would have on their patients. And the way they got rewarded for that, for that, you know, extreme level of concern for their patients was by that being exploited by the company to say, oh, you want to go on strike? Well, fine. You can't come back for a whole week. And and they, you know, claimed some bullshit. Well, we were forced to hire all these travel nurses. Uh, We were forced by the nurses to do this. And we have to have a contract for at least a week. So uh, they they can't come back during that week while we're using these scab nurses. And also, like, it's it really uh, reveals the company's total lack of care for patient outcomes because unsurprisingly in healthcare, it's important to be familiar with your patients. (laughs) Yes. And on top of that, they're understaffed. So even if they got enough travel nurses to fill every single one of those struck positions, Mm -hmm. that's still understaffed. And to have all of these nurses come back and work with the travel nurses actually might get something more done. And they don't give a goddamn at all. Also, don't yeah, travel I mean, nurses cost like four to six times what a regular nurse costs? So they just blew yes. like a month of payroll to cover a, mm-hmm. a week at least. You know, that's crazy. Yeah, because like the whole idea is like healthcare companies think they're like, oh, travel nurses, this is great. I don't have to pay for any benefits. They're four times as expensive in the short term, but I won't employ them permanently. So I'll be able to save money, except that that's, I'll just employ them when health needs surge, which okay. is like, this isn't. This isn't the like, this isn't bauxite mining where, where you have, you're just dealing with the environment. It's like, you can't predict when the healthcare stuff is going to surge. And if you're already not providing enough resources, then it doesn't matter if your predictions are good or bad. You're just not providing enough people. I mean, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me do a little prediction about when, when healthcare needs are going to surge. How about all the fucking time? We have a rapidly <laughs> aging population, an yes. ongoing international epidemic, and a rapidly accelerating climate crisis all happening at the same time. On top yeah. of the massive air quality problem. I mean, maybe Texas and Kansas are maybe not seeing that, but there's still, like, there's going to be some sort of environmental catastrophe happening well, down there. As soon the as heat don't. Yeah, the heat. Yeah. Right. Wet, wet, wet bulb temperatures across Texas are going to be like regularly reaching unsafe conditions for like two, three months at a time every summer for the foreseeable future. And like, that's one of the reasons like the Teamsters getting AC in the box trucks mm-hmm. is so fucking important because it is literally killing workers mm-hmm. who don't have AC in their vehicles and even some who fucking do and just spend too long outside of the truck. Yeah, well, yeah. we could talk about this forever. We could go on and on and on, <laughs> yeah. but we do need to keep getting through the episode and get to our next story. <laughs> but yeah, so solidarity with these workers and like hell of a move by a 
Catholic nonprofit mm-hmm. to hire security guards to lock their own workers out of coming back to the job. Like, come the fuck on. What like, would, shame on Ascension. What would Christ the Redeemer say? <laughs> what would the enormous statue say? <laughs> please go ask President Lula. I'm sure he would tell you to stop harassing Lula, workers. please bring Christ the Redeemer here so we can talk <laughs> some sense <laughs> into these Catholics. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, let's move to our next story where we get to talk about uh, war profiteers and international criminal company Boeing. Uh, So recently, over 6,000 members of the International Association of Machinists Local Lodge 839, they they had gone on strike via a walkout on June 24th uh, after months of negotiating with their employer Spirit Aero Systems. These workers are coming off of their incredible 13-year contract. Holy shit, I've never heard of a 13-year contract in yeah, my life. I believe life. that is the longest union contract I've ever heard of in the United States. Isn't yeah. that about how long it takes to get from beginning to end of the public school system? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, yeah, but they uh, manufacture parts for airplanes and other sorts of, you know, and like, air. I guess, is it all aircraft, basically? Yeah, yeah, aerospace parts supplier. Primarily. Yeah, so uh, they, they provide uh, parts to, I guess, as I was mentioning, Boeing, that criminal organization. And uh, they mostly make, like, the wings for the company, or one of the major things that they make are, like, the wings for the 700 series airlines. The workers have been fighting to improve many aspects of their job, which have gotten steadily worse over their incredibly long contract they voted nearly 80 percent to reject the last offer and approve the bargaining committee uh, by 85 percent to strike clearing the iam's really unnecessarily arduous two-thirds requirement for strike authorization that's yeah well whatever if you if you're in a union that has a two-third strike requirement, uh, I recommend uh, lobbying to change that yeah. <laughs> to a majority. What, are we overturning a presidential veto? <laughs> Come on here. That's the <laughs> one thing I know about two-thirds votes. <laughs> <laughs> like, look, I don't want to get down on the machinists. I'm glad these workers are unionized, but, like, you got to have a simple majority for your strike vote. Yeah. Well, and we do have a quote here from one of the workers who wanted to remain anonymous. They spoke with Luis Feliz Leon of Labor Notes, Quote, saying, quote, we are fighting for insurance and language involving mandatory overtime. We really want to be able to work a reasonable amount of time and afford to pay our bills without having to work 60 or 70 hours a week. Overtime should be for a new boat or a vacation, not to pay the electric bill, end quote. And uh, I mean, absolutely correct. That's true. And I also think that wanting to be anonymous as someone who is going on strike says a lot about this company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, a hundred percent. And and I mean, like, so to, to to look at like what these workers are up against, like the the offer that they rejected did include an average raise of seven and a half percent per year. But the problem is. These workers have had a 13-year fucking contract. And so obviously, look, no matter how hard you negotiated 13 years ago, you don't know what inflation is going to be. You Again, this contract was negotiated in 2010. 
<laughs> like, think about yeah. how much has changed since 2010. I was no 19 how, in 2010. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no matter how good your negotiators are, and this is why you shouldn't have 13 year contracts. Like, you can't predict exactly what's going to happen. And so, uh, because of that, even with a 7.5% per year raise, only for the which first is four years. Well, for the the year, the contract they're negotiating, I believe, is a four year deal. Oh, they're not okay. doing another thirteen year deal. Oh, well then, okay. Well then, I that's good. That's better, I guess I should say. Yeah. So like that is a better raise than we've seen from most you know contract negotiations. But because of how low the raises were for thirteen years in the last deal, that would be insufficient to deal with recent inflation, which has of course surged eighteen percent in just the last four years. And Crucially, while that offer did raise the salary floor for new hires to $20 an hour, it included no immediate raises for veteran employees at all, leaving workers that had been with Spirit for a decade making essentially the same as a new hire. So, and the contract also would have increased workers' health care costs, which the companies tried to paper over with a one-time ratification bonus of $7,500. Now, of course, we're never against workers getting a bonus, but always be on the lookout because a lot of times employers try to use a bonus, which only costs them a one-time sum of money, to get out of giving you a raise, which is continuous over time, See, here's always the, better. Here's the interesting thing about bonuses, is that if they don't feel like a bonus, they're not a bonus. They're a replacement <laughs> for something that you needed more. Right, and to to that worker's point, the bonus should be for a new boat or a vacation, not mm-hmm. to pay the electric bill. <laughs> yeah, and frankly, yeah, let's take it one step further. You shouldn't have to work overtime. You should just randomly get handed enough money to buy a boat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that sounds fair to me. Yeah, I mean, in I mean, and in some ways, this strike kind of mirrors some of like the Teamster UPS fight in that the uh, former contract with Spirit was justified by the IAM leadership as necessary to quote stabilize the industry, uh, which is kind of an odd justification in an industry that is run by government-sanctioned monopolies like Boeing and Airbus. Yeah, well, uh, and also like whenever a company starts talking about like the ecosystem or the the workings of the and we want to make sure the industry is healthy they're always lying because a corp- corporations do not care about anything outside of like five years worth of dividends that's it that's as far as they can see into the future we're lucky if they care beyond a quarter well, well yeah well, and it's like what people are not going to stop needing planes and boeing <laughs> has no competition yeah so <laughs> like the government basically forces places to buy Boeing so that they don't buy Airbus. So yeah. like the, it, the like you're saying like that line of we're going to we're going to need to tighten our belts because the industry is just so competitive. Like that's bullshit in any industry. But it's especially bullshit in an industry when there's no competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean like this it's to go back to the kind of comparison to the Teamsters fight like yeah that contract was 13 years and it was shitty and a lot of workers did not get what they needed out of it. Now, the rank and file are fighting for what they should have won in earlier deals. Spirit immediately moved to try to get ahead of the strike by locking the workers out and calling the local police in Wichita, Kansas, to, quote, protect the plant from striking workers. The very first business day of the strike this past Monday, the company got a local court to give them an injunction limiting the number of picketers at any one location, making it functionally impossible to even delay scabs from getting into the plant. It's a classic tactic. However, 
even with the company's use of repression uh, to stop the strike from blocking the plant, they will not be able to replace the 6,000 machinists. Like, that's just not going to happen. These people are incredibly specialized in their field, and you can't just grab someone off the street to, to do these tasks. But on Tuesday, June 27th, after just a few days on strike, the company did present a new best and final offer, which eliminated the changes of prescription drug coverage to prescription drug coverage, as well as mandatory overtime, two of the key demands of the workers. It also improved the cap of the contract's yearly COLA from 2.5 to 3.5, which caps on COLA fucking suck. That doesn't make any yes. sense to me. Uh, but <laughs> at least it's uh, above where inflation can j- will land on some years. Um, it's not, I still think it's kind of silly, but anyway, uh, then on Thursday, the 29th workers voted 63% in favor, accepting the new deal and returning to work while some of the workers at the company felt like they could have kind of pushed to get like higher base raises. And, uh, but overall they did defeat the attempts to push through the mandatory overtime and got some of those other key victories that the workers were looking for. And so, yeah, hell yeah. This uh, It's good to see these workers stand up and fight back. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It reminds me actually a bit of the um, the workers we talked about, I guess this is actually in 2021 now, who struck at the Volvo truck plant. Oh, yeah. Where they... They rejected, I think, also three offers that the that had been recommended by the UAW bargaining committee, mm-hmm. and they just basically said, "Look, no, you guys are agreeing to stuff that we can't accept." And so they were able, you know, by saying by being adamant, like by being like, "No, we have key demands, and we need these issues to be met. Like we can compromise on other issues, but we have these key things." They were able to finally, eventually, through that those rejections and through striking, win a better deal that they needed. And once again, I think we've seen that demonstrated here through the rank and file saying, look, we get it. You guys on the, you know, we felt on the, like on the bargaining team that this was a pretty good offer, but we just can't take it. And so they were able to stay out there longer, actually go on strike and force the company to juice the offer just enough to get rid of just the worst parts, like the changes to the prescription drugs, like forcing mandatory overtime on them, that the workers were able to win those key things they absolutely had to have. And, you know, they're going to have a stronger contract for it. And vitally, only a four-year deal this time. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so not another 13 years before the next contract negotiations. I've but never even heard of a contract that goes over a decade. I mean, that's just uh, absolutely bizarre to me. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So um, going into our next story, folks, we've got once again... Amazon creating unsafe conditions for employees and once again trying to evade responsibility for it. So we've talked on the show multiple times, unfortunately, about how incredibly dangerous it can actually be to work at Amazon, despite being one of the biggest employers in the country. They famously have an injury rate at their warehouses, double that of the industry average, and even higher rates the more uh, automated facilities that they have. But one of the really big issues that we've talked about is real simple, heat. Like, that has been incredibly deadly at Amazon facilities all across the country, especially in, you know, particularly warm regions, where we've heard stories of local ambulances basically being on call at Amazon facilities, especially in the summer, knowing that with a cruel regularity, they will be called to the site to treat somebody for heat-related injuries because the company refuses to actually provide both 
working conditions, and a pace of work that the human body can actually physically withstand. Um, and so there, there was a recent investigation by Sarah Lazar and Jeff Shirky in a collaboration between In These Times and Workday Magazine that showed that Amazon is continuing to do as much as possible to evade responsibility for the horrendous toll that their exploitative conditions take on their workers. And they're specifically zeroing in on a case in Illinois, in Joliet, just outside Chicago, uh, on, on June 2nd, where the outside temperature hit 90 degrees and 59-year-old worker Roger Kieka tragically passed away at an Amazon cross-dock facility. Uh, now, the company has vehemently denied they had anything to do with his death, citing the warehouse's climate control system not allowing the building to rise above 77 degrees. But workers have pushed back against that narrative, especially noting that, okay, just because you say the building was at 77 doesn't mean that we know it was. And that's also not the end-all and be-all of working conditions. Yeah, I just to, to that point, I think that very often, not only, I think there was one of the stories back on when there was the tarmac at the air uh, facility where they actually had to bring their own thermometers out because Amazon mm-hmm. hides any thermometers that actually indicate what the temperature is. And so unless the workers are taking the measurements themselves, you cannot fucking trust Amazon. No, yeah, well, and companies are prone to install their temp- their thermometers and other temperature sensors right next to things like cold air vents. So if they pump just mm-hmm. a little cold air into the building, yeah, it might be like 72 or 75 next to the event, but everybody working on the floor is experiencing functionally like 90, 95, 100 degree heat. Yeah, and so uh, by using a FOIA request, uh, Lazar and Shirky were able to get access to the 911 call made by uh, an AmCare worker. AmCare is Amazon's in-house clinic uh, who found Kieka having a health crisis. On the call, the worker said they believe Kieka was suffering from dehydration, which I would just point out, uh, not really a great look to say that you have no issues with the conditions at your uh, work site if people are suffering from dehydration. Uh, but again, that's just what this AmCare employee thought was going on. Of course, we know that there was a much more serious condition. Uh, and Amazon, but just in general, even if it had been, you know, dehydration, it's Amazon's extreme pace of work and draconian surveillance that makes workers, you know, rush from point to point in the warehouse because you get penalized for just like showing up slightly slower to a different point of a warehouse from another. And so the idea that like a worker being dehydrated is outside Amazon's control is obviously untrue because in the, of course they put out stuff like, Oh, we, we leave out water and it doesn't fucking matter. Cause if you can't, t- if spending the like two minutes to stop and get water would get you dinged for taking too long, then it doesn't matter how many water stations you put out. That's irrelevant. Yeah. It's also really important to remember that workers are punished for taking bathroom breaks. And so they are encouraged mm-hmm. to drink less water in case they might have to use the bathroom. So those two compounding factors would will lead people to just not drink water. Yeah. And so AmCare workers attempted to revive Kieka using an, an AED, those emergency defibrillators that you'll see places. But unfortunately, he passed on the way to the hospital. And so, but just as an illustration of how how common this sort of thing is, when the 911 dispatcher on this call asked where the amb- ambulances should go, because of course an Amazon warehouse is an enormous facility, uh, the AmCare worker responded saying, quote, It would be the main entrance door. They are very familiar with the entrance. They come here quite often, sadly to say, end quote. And 
it's that last part I actually think that bothers me more, just the sadly to say. Now, look, I know it's not this Amcare. This is as, as many problems as we, of course, have with the in-house doctor shit that is always just used to send people back to work. Like, it's not am, the Amcare worker didn't create these problems. But it's this thing that it's like, what are you going to do? Like, can't this is just how things are. This is just a natural result. It's like you, it's like the company created the conditions. These conditions weren't natural. People aren't like crawling out of a cave and walking into an Amazon warehouse. <laughs> like, all of this is constructed and all of it can be changed. But this treating it like it's just this natural thing is just drives me nuts. Yeah. We have a, a quote here from an organizer with Warehouse Workers for Justice, Tommy Carden who told reporters uh, about Amazon's top concern and how it has been to avoid responsibility, saying, quote, From day one, Amazon has tried to make it seem like it wasn't their fault. It's all pre-existing conditions. It's all non-work related. And now we're learning someone thought it was dehydration. Uh, We've heard from many workers at the MDW2 about temperature issues, not just this week, but for years, especially at the docks. Based on what we've heard from workers, we simply don't believe it's true that the temperature does not rise above 77 degrees, end quote. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah, I don't believe it. Who would? Who would? It's an obvious lie. Anybody who's walked through a warehouse, much less worked in one, would know that that's just categorically untrue. And the workers who spoke with reporters uh, basically corroborated that the area Kieka worked in was exposed to outdoor temperatures and that the truck trailers that they load and unload are like ovens. One worker said, quote, in all honesty, that warehouse during the summer is hotter than it is outside. That man, referring to Kieka, worked in the trailer. We are also in the trailer stacking the fans they give us don't reach all the way inside either end quote and so the workers in joliet have previously held multiple walkouts over unsafe conditions extreme pace of work and low pay so the heat is a critical issue here but it's just you know it's one lethal thing on top of an already you know dysfunctional and and abusive work environment well, and I think that I want to just paint this picture just a little bit more clearly because, you know, if there is, like you were saying, maybe they put the thermostat right next to the vents, so it's 77 right next to it. These have big open doors where it's very hot outside, and the trucks, which have been just boiling in the sun, again, being treated like ovens, are then backing up and loading all of that heat directly into the building and then these workers not only just have to deal with the fact that they're in the building where those trucks are pulling up to they are going into the trucks Mm -hmm. that are already that hot and those are the working conditions those are the actual working conditions and amazon's response to that is well we we gave them a fan a fan that (laughs) isn't enough anyway and as they mentioned in that quote doesn't even hit the back of the trailer so you're not even giving them a fan that's strong enough to even reach the end of the trailer much less an actual form of climate control <sighs> and so you know again they, they they keep pointing to this oh we've got water coolers everywhere which is again meaningless if you if you ma if you you use your panopticon to watch everybody every second of every day and tell them that if they take too long on their water break they're going to be fired or you're going to dock them you know uh, sick time or, or vacation time or something then you could put a hundred water coolers per square meter it wouldn't matter um, 
So Warehouse Workers for Justice, which is a nonprofit associated with the UE, has called for Amazon to be more transparent about what happened in the case of Mr. Kieka and, and to change their policies to protect workers and prevent these deaths in the future. And they pointed to an investigation conducted in 2019 by The Intercept that found, which will be absolutely not surprising at all to anybody who listens to this show, that Amcare... The again, the in-house medical group owned by Amazon was focused more on hushing up injuries more than treating them. Uh, no, in, in that investigation found quote <laughs> Amcare employees nationwide were pressured to sweep injuries and medical issues under the rug at the expense of employee health. End quote. Wow, company doctors being company doctors. Who'd have thunk? Yeah, it's yeah, like no, right? it, it's so shocking that that is the exact thing that that institution was created to do. And it's doing that. Good God. How could this have <laughs> happened? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, look, it's it's awful. And ultimately, like I bring this up because it's like this company is under investigation by now a variety of government agencies from the FTC to, you know, the Justice Department, OSHA, the Department of Labor, but we we know that like these issues are not going to be solved by a Department of Labor investigation. They're not going to be solved by OSHA, which can only give out a maximum fine of fifteen thousand dollars per individual worker death on the job, uh, even when they find a violation. And that's why you know we spend so much time doing this show and talking about unions because you know to what you were pointing to, John, earlier, UPS has this problem. But the Teamsters, because they're unionized, because they have 350,000 strong members, have been able to fight to get AC in their car and save lives. And that's exactly why we need to desperately to organize Amazon and support every union, every independent effort, be it Amazonians United, be it the ALU, be it the Teamsters, be it whoever who is trying to unionize Amazon workers. Because, like... We got good organizations like Warehouse Workers for Justice who are doing brilliant work and obviously support them. And, and, and But, like, if we don't get these workers unionized, which, of course, Warehouse Workers for Justice is fighting to do, we're never going to solve this because they're the only ones, the workers themselves coming together and being organized and getting support from the community to do that and not get, you know, fired and have your life destroyed. All of that is what it's going to take to actually solve this and actually, you know, save workers' lives and keep them from being sacrificed for fucking Amazon's continued expanding profits. Yeah. Well, to move to our final story, we got we've been talking about UPS throughout this entire episode, as we have over many of the episodes, but we gotta actually get an update on what is going on over at UPS. And so the countdown continues. The biggest strike that's going to, the huge strike that's going to happen on August 1st, you know, I mean, very likely, is even more pending than we even thought in the first place. So let's just start with a few updates. Last week, the Teamsters and UPS presented their proposals on economic issues. The Teamsters proposed a bold vision to uh, distribute the massive profits of UPS that have been made off the labor of the workers, uh, not only to eliminate tiers, but massively improve conditions for part-time workers, secure health care and retirement benefits, and make UPS one of the best places to work in the country. UPS came back to the table with their absurd offer of 55 cents of a raise of 55 cents an hour. 
After this non-starter on Wednesday, June 28th, the Teamsters walked away from the bargaining table and demanded a real offer, a, a best and final offer from UPS, uh, saying that the nationwide strike now appears inevitable. But that uh, last and final offer has to come really soon. Yeah, and and I also really appreciated like how aggressive like they've been in this and 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 also it's just so refreshing to hear a union leader just drop the platitudes and just talk about this stuff honestly like that's a big part of the reason why like sean o'brien like he, he came out after after that insulting offer from ups and said quote they don't care about our members families ups doesn't want to pay up their actions and insults at the bargaining table have proven that they are just another corporation that wants to keep all the money at the top end quote and i understand that some of this is you know it's posturing to put pressure on ups at the bargaining table but it's also fucking true (laughs) and you just don't hear enough like union leaders in this country take the the company to task Uh for doing this sort of stuff like you hear it sometimes but not enough you said that it's like posturing and i think that that is an unfortunate vision of the way that we see labor in this country because the more important thing that you said is that it's true and that Mm -hmm. is what we need our labor leaders to be doing more speaking the fucking truth because i'm tired of seeing like these people dying on the job these people in these ovens of vehicles it is unacceptable and you're right it is great to see sean o'brien out there being a real union leader well and unfortunately there are plenty of press outlets that are more than happy to posture without saying anything that happens to be true so we've seen cnn abc forbes the sacramento b usa today and many other major outlets all writing articles trying to turn workers against the teamsters for doing this nebulous thing they like to call disrupting the economy as adam johnson uh documented in an article for his blog and while we've seen that be effective in Using outrage over Biden crushing a rail strike, UPS is kind of a different beast. So mm-hmm. workers tend to know their UPS driver. That's a person that you see doing their work every day. So it's going to be pretty difficult to paint them as greedy malcontents <laughs> um, compared to rail workers who you know, while their demands are totally equally just, uh, just aren't as visible to the public. And, you know, That does make a big difference, but it's probably not going to stop the press from trying anyway, considering the fact that they're more than willing to vilify, let's say, elementary school teachers. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No. The press is just going to... There has been some pearl-clutching articles Mm -hmm. that are very stupid and very bad that have been written. As this strike approaches, the screeching from the capitalist media is going to get unbearable. Mm -hmm. So be prepared for some absolutely noxious takes in the next few weeks about how, like, you're going to see concern trolling about how a UPS strike is terrible for people with disabilities Mm -hmm. because now they won't get deliveries. You're going to hear, they are going to bring out every sort of attempt to manipulate you. They possibly can. I can't wait. Just (laughs) like recognize that's what they're doing. Whenever you see this, I can't wait to open up the New York times and read. Are the teamsters more like Francisco Franco than you thought by Ross (laughs) Duthot? Yeah, no, these attempts have been absurd. But um, the negotiations, though, have continued, and the pressure from the Teamsters has been getting 
results. And part of that, though, I think has been because of the fact that not only has, you know, Sean O'Brien been out on the, in the negotiating table for long hours talking with UPS's management and their negotiators, but has also been working with other unions to build solidarity and really kind of putting together a labor army in, in preparation for this strike. Because this week, we also saw at the same time that UPS came back with their insulting offer, the Teamsters reaffirming their solidarity with the Independent Pilots Association, which is the union that covers most UPS pilots. The IPA walked the picket line with the Teamsters in 1997 and reaffirmed that they will stand with the Teamsters again this year should a strike become necessary, and that should the Teamsters strike, the IPA will strike with them and will refuse to handle any UPS cargo. Hell yeah. And another tactic that they've used to escalate their leverage is by participating in quote-unquote practice pickets at UPS hubs, which I think is so cool. Hell they're basically yeah. a great tactic. I love it. They're, they're, just, they're going out on the strike line early as like a, this is what you're going to see and it's going to, mm-hmm. and this should scare you because this is going to be for real and you're, <laughs> you're not going to like it. Yeah. Uh, it uh, really sh- shows a huge amount of unity and discipline, uh, especially a full month before the strike is tended is likely to come down. Now, yeah, shouts out to Alexander Edward, host yes. of Minion Death Cult, and a UPS Teamster driver who was posting photos from the uh, practice picket. And uh, I just have to say, it was a certified dudes rock moment. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I I think I think one of his like uh, like secondary tweets after that picture was like, you don't think we're serious? This is my first time showing up early to work in 17 years. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. But to get to that point that I was kind of alluding to earlier about how the deadline for this is coming down way sooner than we had initially anticipated, the Teamsters announced that the final contract has to be given to them by July 5th, literally two days from now according well from from our recording date uh and that's because it's go- that's what's going to allow them to have their 350,000 again 350,000 UPS members time to actually vote on whether or not to ratify it and so presumably we're going to know if they're going to strike by the end of this week yeah and i mean they may give them, you know, another couple of day extension if the company is willing to, you know, move on some critical issues. But I love the fact that he's not like, you bet that, that the Teamsters are, have been moving the goalposts on the company, mm-hmm. which is something workers never get to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's Just, like uh, um, it's like John Boyd in the OODA loop, right? Like every time when you're in a conflict, you're going through observe, orient, decide, act. And if your OODA loop is faster and more effective than your opponent's, you just get to fuck with them all the time. And that's what companies constantly try to do with unions. So it's really, really great to see unions just be like faster, more agile, and making the demands that set the stage in a way that is usually reserved for the bosses. Yeah, we love to see it. And it seems to be getting results because this that, that pressure that they put on the company to, to give them a best and final offer on uh, the 5th, that was presented at a national press conference on uh, on the first, and just a few hours later, the company came back and conceded on several incredibly vital issues. And first and foremost, you know, one of the big things that the workers have been fighting for 
in this contract, maybe the single issue more than any other that's been mentioned, is to eliminate the tiers that were imposed in the last deal that was undemocratically forced through under the Jimmy Hoffa Jr. regime. And to get rid of that and stop having, you know, Teamster workers being paid less money for uh, than other workers doing the same work. And UPS has been forced to acknowledge that as well. And they came out uh, just a few hours after that, you know, the Teamsters basically threw down the gauntlet and admitted that they know what the Teamsters have been saying, you know, for months now, that no matter what happens, the next contract that the U- Teamsters sign with UPS will not have tears in it. Like one way or the other, there's not going to be any more of this pitting workers against each other bullshit. And the company was forced to cave on that. And and on Saturday, they agreed to give up the two-tiered workforce, eliminate the 22.4, as it's been so-called because of its uh, like where it's located in the contract provision, eliminate that position, make all workers currently operating on that hybrid basis into full-time package car drivers and place them in the seniority system alongside all of the other full-time package car drivers. Retroactively fixing it. I, it is a massive win. It's mm-hmm. huge. Like, imagine, yeah. like, so you lost, like, a pretty serious battle in, in a particular thing, and then you just got it all back. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, there's still other issues that they're negotiating on, pay raises, especially mm-hmm. for part-time workers. That's probably going to be the big sticking point and maybe the thing that forces, you know, that the, the company may just not be willing to actually pay the part-time workers who make them all their money enough. And that may be what causes the strike. But but eliminating tiers, again, a month before the contract expiration Frankly, I think like the Teamsters are showing a masterclass in how you run a contract campaign. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, because that's just such a huge win. If I was Sean O'Brien's teacher right now, I would just write <laughs> A plus plus exceeds expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Staple this to your but, fridge. <laughs> yeah, and in addition, they also won finally UPS granting workers MLK Day as a holiday, which they didn't have. Hell yeah, um, and banning the company's uh, policy of forcing workers of being able to force workers to work mandatory OT on their days off. This is just so they, just bangers. Just I'm so <laughs> I'm I'm, th- I'm going to apply to my local UPS store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so like in response to UPS being forced to cave on these issues, uh Gen- Teamsters Secretary Treasurer Fred Zuckerman said, quote, whether it's overtime our members don't want to take, holidays they know they deserve, or equal pay for equal work, if we stand united and commit to protect each other to the bitter end, there is no chance in hell we lose this fight, end quote. Hell yeah. That's a badass thing to say, Fred Zuckerman. And also, (laughs) love people with a Z last name. There's not enough of us out there. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, all right. Well, we are get we got to the end. We went through all the stories. It's now time for a nice like leisurely stroll through some pictures with text <laughs> on them. It's the yes, meme review. Well, that's right, folks. Welcome to the image description portion of the podcast. <laughs> that's what I'm talking uh, about. Well, as long as we're describing images, this one's going to 
take a little bit of description. So we have Elon Musk uh, walking towards the camera uh, in front of a field of flaming Teslas with two burning <laughs> Twitter logos in the corners of the image. And it says around it in, in circular text, this fascist kills machines, <laughs> which is hilarious. And I got to say, the only thing this m- is missing is one of his uh, rocket ships blowing up in the top right corner of the frame. <laughs> Yes. I was just thinking because I'm like, you know, it's it's true. Every one of these businesses that he's been involved with, he's completely blown up, and yet he's still incredibly rich. Boy, capitalism rewards innovation. Well, yeah. l- let's let's be clear. He hasn't blown up the Hyperloop yet because it doesn't exist and it never will. Well, there are prototypes <laughs> that definitely will end up. I, I'm just waiting for a chain of Teslas to explode in a very small tunnel. It will eventually happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, R.I.P. Twitter, uh, the stupidest rich man in the world bought you. Yeah, if you managed to get a, a blue sky, we actually just created one of those. So look for us on there. We'll see you on there, Yeah, folks. we are John McAfee at Blue Sky Social. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of the texts about, the, some of the posts about whales might be weird. Don't worry about those. But so... For our next one, <laughs> I love this one. So this is, if folks have seen any of the propaganda uh posters that the United States Army put out to explain to U.S. troops who their allies are. One very famous one they might have seen is a picture of a Soviet soldier in like one of those, I think he's in like one of the peaky caps uh, with the red star on it. And it's to tell him, this man is your friend. He fights for freedom, which is true. And then the U.S. pretended it wasn't true immediately after the war. <laughs> Actually, yeah. but now a little we've got bit a new before version. the war ended, even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now we've got a new version of that poster where it's they've just replaced the Soviet soldier with a picture of Sean O'Brien. That's right. Yeah. I just also love he, he's got this little smirk. Like he's about to <laughs> either just like really irk someone or he's about to say the most scathing thing that you've heard all day. It's it's the same expression he showed like when he was just making fun of Mark Wayne, whatever his last name is, that incredibly annoying senator uh-huh. that he talked to during the, the testimony. Yeah. When he like made fun of him for hiding all of his money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and our next one is uh, some text and then uh, an image of Gandalf g- with his, like laying with his nose bleeding. But we're going to start with the text at the top. It says, interviewer, can you explain this gap in your resume? Me. And it's that photo of Gan- Gandalf and the text at the bottom of that says, I strayed out of thought. I, sh- I strayed out of what? What is it? I, I-, I can do yeah, the, do the, it. The quote yeah. if you want. I strayed out of thought and time. Stars wheeled overhead, and every day was as long as a life age of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's, that's an answer to the question. <laughs> and then uh, we have a, a call. We have not had a cats and hard hats meme in so long, and we're, I'm happy that we got another one in here. Uh, this one is a the crying cat face, and it's like dripping sweat down under the uh, the orange like, construction hat. It says uh, me suffering a slow demise of roasting in the. Um, <clears throat> I like that he wrote of from in the actual. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's why I was like, wait, hold on, why am I reading this wrong? But me suffering a slow demise of from roasting in the hot sun, and the pollen as the pollen enters my body to wage an assault on my face and perfect pincer movement yet i'm just try trying to uh to make my 1550 an hour and go home to my 380 square foot apartment 
Ouch. Oh, they're really taking some uh, fucking uh, DeShare Zone cues with the <laughs> misspellings here. I've really struggled through that one. It's tough to I type like when it... you just have little cat paws. <laughs> or when you've got all the you've got this this pincer assault of pollen and heat <laughs> and the confines of a porta potty. <laughs> well, yeah. speaking of getting assaulted in a pincer formation, uh, our last meme of the day is just an orca being interviewed. It's someone holding a microphone <laughs> up to the orca, and the orca is saying, "UPS better not move any product by sea. Orcas stand with the Teamsters." Hell yeah, <laughs> badass, love it, Absolutely. orcas. What would their union That's, local be? What numbers look the most like a fish? I guess they'd be 69. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like by default. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Cetaceans local 69. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, we're going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank everyone for listening. And if you'd like to support us, remember, we're an entirely listener-supported show. And so any support that you'd be willing to give us goes all the way, the entire way, for us doing this. And you can find that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. You also get access to all of our bonus content. We just had a great interview with some USSW uh, worker leaders and that was a really awesome interview so check that out we're also going to be continuing our cybernetics and labor series you know there's just so many parts to that anyway also jump in the discord there is the reading group there's also just so many people in there to talk to about labor and organizing and all that stuff write us a review somewhere follow us in all the places we're on twitter at work stoppage pod we're on blue sky at work stoppage uh, you can follow John still on Twitter at Facebook Villain. We have not gotten him a Blue Sky account yet. Uh, you can follow other- me on uh, Mastodon at Jonah Hill at MastodonSocial.net. <laughs> <laughs> and make sure to listen to Beep Beep Lotus, listen to Red Game Table, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity. Yeah.